Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. How to profit from merger arbitrage on three ideas. We're doing things a little differently on Three Ideas today, looking at merger arbitrage with Roy Barron. He's the co-president and CIO of Westchester Capital Management. Roy, welcome to the show. You specialize in merger arbitrage. We haven't ever done that on the show before. And so I think instead of asking you about your global macro outlook, I think it's important for folks to understand exactly how you do this. Uh, many people will be familiar with it, but actually executing is something quite different. So let's take a step back and, and just walk us through the steps before we actually get into your three ideas, Roy. Well, thank you, Sam. It's nice to be here. Um, and I appreciate you having me on. Merger arbitrage is a very specific niche type of investing strategy. Um, it involves investing in the shares of companies that are involved in mergers and acquisitions and other types of corporate reorganizations with the goal of profiting from the successful completion of those transactions, not necessarily from the appreciation of the companies involved, although they will typically appreciate, but from the completion of the transaction, which is why it falls into a category called market neutral investing or absolute return investing. Uh, so typically when a transaction is announced, the stock will trade up because it, transactions are typically announced at a premium to where the stock is, has, was previously trading. Uh, and it will approach the deal price, but it won't trade all the way up to the deal price because there may be some uncertainty about whether the deal is completed. There may be some uncertainty as to the timing of the transaction or other types of factors, such as the shareholder vote, the regulatory approvals and things like that. And all of those uncertainties uh, cause the stock to trade at a discount to the deal price. That discount is known as the arbitrage spread. And that arbitrage spread is the amount of profit that we make if the deal is completed. So you can understand that if the deal is completed, whether it's in a, a down market or an up market or a sideways market, the investor or the arbitrageur in our case will realize that arbitrage spread as the profit and that's how we make our money, and that's why it's market neutral. The market goes down, the deal's completed, we still make our, our, our profit, which is the amount of the arbitrage spread. You're very well respected in this field. You're very well known in this field. And so my curiosity is, I've been doing the preparation for this edition, is what's the edge that you have that others don't? Many people can look at a deal, whether it's uh, Microsoft, Activision, and we saw what happened with regulators here in the UK, and say they think this deal is going to close. But obviously, you see some type of edge in yourself and your team. So what's the edge? There are a number of edges that can be had. I mean, all of the, all of the information is publicly available information. So it's really what you do with it and how you analyze it. My own background, for example, is I used to be a lawyer. I used to be, a, you know, a, a, actually used to work at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, and my partner, Mike Shannon, used to be an investment banker. Our lead analyst used to be a, a fundamental analyst at a major bulge bracket firm. And when a deal is announced, we have to look at all the different possibilities of, of timing, of transaction completion, the, the types of, of approvals that are needed, and the things that can get away of the transaction actually being completed such as an antitrust approval, or in the case of a drug deal, an FDA approval. All of those things are various factors that we need to handicap 
the, the probability of being received. And then we look at the market and see where it's trading and see if the market is appropriately discounting those factors or those approvals or those contingencies. So we've been doing this. I personally been doing this since the mid 1990s as, as my partner and all the members of, of our team have been doing it for, for decades. So would you say your edge is the brain power that you have? You have the experience here and you're looking at something and you're more sure than the market is that this deal is going to close. This acquisition is going to happen. I would say that's true. I mean, it's a, there's a matter of judgment. It's a very qualitative process. There's some quantitative calculations that we use to determine whether we're getting paid an appropriate amount for the risk that we're taking and whether or not the market is appropriately pricing in the various risks. But you know, at the end of the day, it's really a judgment call to decide whether or not um, the transaction is appropriately reflected in the market um, in terms of the price it's trading at versus the transaction price. And then also in terms of, of constructing a portfolio. The portfolio really needs to be diversified because in, in many instances, the amount you stand to make is going to be little compared to the, the the size of the potential drawdown or your downside, or or it's known in the industry as the value at risk, the VAR. And so you have to make sure you have a very, very high batting average. I, I, just before we get into to the first of your three ideas, uh, Microsoft Activision, as I mentioned, is, is the one that's on so many people's minds, especially because the UK rejected the deal. So walk us through, was that a, was that a deal that you were going long on? And how do people cope when something doesn't go through? How did you see that? And how do you look at it in hindsight? It, it's a good question. And that's an example of the type of research that, that can add value to a process. I mean, if you look at it, you think, okay, Microsoft's buying Activision. They own Xbox. They're buying a game maker. What, what's the problem with that? Why, why could regulators possibly have a problem? But in reality, if you delve further into it, the regulators didn't have a problem, and in particular, uh, the CMA, which is the UK regulatory authority that blocked the transaction, didn't have a problem so much with the uh, with the consoles as the potential growth of the cloud gaming industry. Cloud gaming is very, very new, and they were worried that if Microsoft controls a bunch of quote-unquote must-have games, such as Call of Duty, et cetera, that they would then be able to dominate the industry. They'd be able to force the providers to use their own cloud service for um for data transfer and storage, and it would be an anti-competitive transaction. That's the standard that, that most regulators use. If a transaction would thwart, thwart com competition or, or foreclose competition, then regulators uh, would like to either kind of control the transaction by imposing conditions or block it altogether. And in this particular case, um, Lena Khan at the FTC actually filed suit to block the transaction. The EU may still approve it, but the CMA, which has a very, very long process and is very difficult to overturn, has decided that it's anti-competitive and they would they would like to block it. So they have filed an action, they have denied approval for it, and Microsoft and Activision have said that they're going to appeal. They're contractually obligated to do so. So we'll probably see some appeal papers in the near future, uh, but it's unclear whether they will see it all the way through. That remains to be seen. At this were point, you, I would Were you surprised by the CMA's de denial? We, we were not surprised. Uh, the stock was trading at a significant discount, but during the pendency of the transaction, the, the fundamental value of Activision increased. They reported good earnings. It became more of a valuable, uh, valuable company, and the stock traded up from the low 70s into the mid 80s. It's currently trading at about 75. We had a position because we thought that the, the transaction would kind of percolate as the regulators were reviewing it and looking at it, and the, and 
the parties were filing their papers. So we were set up long stock and short 75 strike calls. And that, that's that's in our public filings. It's, you know, it's been publicly disclosed. Uh, right now, the stock is trading in the neighborhood of 75 or 76. And it remains to be seen where it will go to um, if the parties decide not to file. But we think that they will file an appeal and the stock will stay roughly treading water until that plays out. They may still decide to terminate the transaction. But your your view is that you think that it will happen in the end? No, no. I, I to be honest, I think the deal is is DOA. Uh, yeah. I I think you know it, it's such a long, involved, complicated, and difficult road to travel that I don't think they'll be able to overturn the the, uh, the CMA denial. CMA is the name of the antitrust regulatory authority in the UK called the Competition Markets Authority. But I would also point out that that the FTC in the US has sued to block it. That's an administrative case. And that is going on right now. Microsoft is, is currently fighting that. But again, you know, pursuant to the terms of their merger agreement, they have to resist these types of legal uh, legal entanglements up until what's called the termination date. So we'll see what happens at the termination date of the transaction. The parties will either have to continue litigating and extend the merger agreement or terminate altogether. And so I think it's worth just noting that you're hedging you're hedging this by shorting these calls. That's something that's quite complicated. For, for a group that's not like yours to do, for some of the individual investors sitting at home. Certainly many Real Vision viewers would be familiar with it, but I think it's worth noting that so people realize exactly what they're getting into because these three ideas are quite different from the other ones that we've done on this program in the past. I, th I think that's a very good point. I mean, the way we invested in that deal is sort of a chicken's way of doing it because uh, it was a $95 transaction. The stock was trading in the 70s and started trading up all the way to 80 because um, because of some good fundamental uh, reports, their quarterly reports, their performance, et cetera. And we would only lose money if the stock traded below 74 because we got paid a dollar for those 70, a dollar in premium for the 75 strike calls. So we were a little bit scared and our antitrust counsel warned us that the CMA was likely to have a problem with the transaction. But if you, know, if you were long, if you were straight long uh, Activision, you stood to make more money than we did if the deal was successfully completed. But we were we played it in a more conservative manner in that we would only make that one dollar as long as it stayed above the strike price of the call, which is 75 at at May expiration, which is on May 19th. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Well, thanks for laying that out for us. And let's sure. jump into your first idea. And that's going long, Horizon Therapeutics. It's Amgen that's uh, looking to acquire them. If we just take a step back and look at the stock price of Long Horizon, I'll focus on that for here because this is what you're going long. So that's what's interesting here. Now, this had a pre-announcement price of $85.50. They're offering $116.50. Today, it's trading at $111. So there's still a difference there between $116.5 and $111. For anyone who doesn't know Horizon Therapeutics, it's a biopharmaceutical. Uh, bio pharmaceutical, which makes medicines, essentially. Walk us through this position. And just to note, of course, you have a position here and you think that this deal is going to go through. Yes, we think that the transaction is highly likely to be successfully completed. Amgen is an experienced acquirer. They're much bigger. They have the money to purchase Horizon. Um, there's no financing issues. There's no shareholder issues. This is a cash transaction. In the case of a cash transaction, 
an arbitrageur will just buy the shares of the target company and not sell short the shares of the acquirer. If we were receiving shares of the acquirer, we would sell short the number of shares of the acquirer that we expect to receive upon deal completion. But in this particular case, we're getting paid cash. So the, the arbitrageur's investment in this particular case would just be to buy shares of Horizon at 111 or 111.25, wherever it's trading right now. And then when the deal is completed, we would receive $116.50. That difference, the $5 or whatever it is, is known as the arbitrage spread. Now, on a, you know, on a gross basis, if you look at it and say, well, I'm only making 5% or whatever, um, that may look different to somebody who's, who invests on an annualized basis. Because if you make that 5% uh, over the next two months, then that's 30% annualized per year. So we're not making this investment because we think that Horizon is going to go to the moon. It's not going to quadruple like Google or Apple. All we need is for that deal to be successfully completed. So if the market goes down and Amgen trades down and Apple and Google trade down, we're not going to lose money as long as the deal is completed. We will still make that $5 per share. One thing I would note, though, and, and I would say this about all the deals that we recommend, is that the, the upside-downside profile is fairly asymmetric, meaning that we stand to make less money than we stand to lose if the deal is not successfully completed. Because as you, as you mentioned, it was trading at $85 before the deal was announced. So that means that in terms of risk management, the way that we would manage a portfolio would be to buy a diversified portfolio of these, these particular investments. Now I'm giving you three ideas and they're all great. And, I, and you know, we think they have a high likelihood of working out. But in terms of managing a fund or a portfolio, in order to mitigate that single event risk, we run a diversified portfolio. So we're not going to have 50% of our book just in this one deal or in another deal. And, and as you talk about these annualized rates, one thing that jumps out at me, you know, the question I always ask on the show is, what's your time horizon? Rao, Maggie, whenever they do interviews on the platform, and they just we stress this so much at Real Vision because timing is everything. When you go in, when you come out is everything. And That's this right. is a very, very different field because the time horizon it could be much, much shorter than other, you know, if you're waiting for Tesla to go up, however many years you might be holding that stock, waiting for tech stocks to recover, you may not have and most likely won't have that type of time horizon here. So when you look at the time horizon here, what is your calculation? Are you hoping that it closes as quickly as possible? Are you hoping that it drags out? And how do you think about your time horizons in this case? So that's a good question, and that's part of the puzzle that we need to solve. The um, transactions typically need all kinds of regulatory approvals. I mean, if you look at a public utilities deal, they need a bunch of different states' approvals. If you look at a drug deal, they may need FDA approval. They may need um, antitrust approval in a variety of countries in which they operate technology. If you, if, for example, a broadcasting deal may need FCC approval as well. So what we do is try to handicap the amount of time that the transaction is expected to take. Of course, we would like to get our money sooner rather than later, because if we're going to get $116.50, we want to get it sooner, because if the, later, the longer it takes, the lower the annualized rate of return is. But either way, we try to, you know, we, we play the cards that were dealt. We, we try to handicap how long the review will take. We speak to antitrust counsel. By the way, this is one of those things that, you know, uh, when Dave Letterman talks about stupid Petrix and he says, don't try this at home or whatever, it, it's very difficult for an amateur investor to to tick all those boxes and speak to an antitrust council, a, a communications council, a drug council, 
because you, you need to have all that information in order to appropriately analyze the, the investment's probability as well as the time frame. And in this particular case, they have most of their approvals already. Um, we're waiting for an, a final U.S. antitrust approval, and we're expecting this to close within two months or so. The company is still guiding us to first half of the year. And if it closes in two months, although you're making 5%, as mentioned before, that's 30% annualized. So it's very you, you really have to have the resources to be able to do the, the deep digging on this stuff. And Roy, what is your, I won't say worst case scenario here, because I'm we can always think of the worst, but what would what would be a pretty bad scenario here, but you think was is within the realm of possibilities? Obviously, that's not what you think is gonna happen. But mm-hmm. what would what, what could happen here where you'd say, whoa, this is not going to to plan? What do you think the most likely scenario of a bad scenario is? So the worst thing that could happen would be a regulatory blockage of the deal. They'll say you, you can't buy Horizon. Their you know their therapeutic devices, their rare disease disease uh, treatments are are too important for you to buy them. You're going to monopolize it. You're going to raise the prices on everybody, and we're just not going to let you close the deal. In that case, the transaction would be terminated, and the stock would trade back down to what we call its standalone price or its fair value price, which is typically where it would be trading. Uh, prior to the, the deal being announced. In this case, we go all the way go back down into the 80s. So you have maybe $5 of upside and you have whatever it is, you know, $25 of downside, which is kind of typical. We think, you know, we think that it, this is very, very likely to be completed. We think it's, you know, well into the 90s, over 90% likely to be completed. And it's probably trading at, you know, I, I want to say it's probably trading at like 75% uh, implied in the market based upon where the, where the stock is trading right now. So we think it's underpriced. It's inefficiently priced, um, and that if it's completed, you make you can successfully make a nice annualized rate of return. But the other potential outcome is that it, that it gets delayed, and maybe there's some litigation, or maybe the, the uh, they decide to to grant the FTC additional time to review it. So if it takes twice as long, if it takes four months instead of two months, then the annualized rate of return goes down. Although we still make that five dollars as long as the deal's completed. You make it sound very easy, but I'm sure every deal doesn't always go to plan and that the backup, the hedge doesn't work. I mean, walk us through that a little bit, because from what you say, it sounds like you've got every base covered, but we know that doesn't exist. Right. There, you know, there's, there's, you can't create a risk-free investment because if it was risk-free, you wouldn't make any money or you'd make less than, you know, less than a T-bill. In this particular case, the risk that we're taking is the risk that the deal would be completed and stock trades back down. You can hedge away things like deal failure risk. You can hedge away the risk of fraud, natural disasters. You know, a number of years ago, we invested in a deal in a uh, an oil refinery deal, and the refinery was hit by hurricane, destroyed the it destroyed the refinery, and it's nobody could have predicted that. But that's kind of the risk that you take. You know, in the, in the old days, they used to call the strategy risk arbitrage. Now they call it merger arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Same thing, but you are taking those are the risks that you take, and that's what you're being rewarded for. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't be able to make money on these investments. And I'm sure that after that storm hit, it caused you some pain. Yes, you know the funny. Here's a, an interesting point: is that um, merger agreements govern all the rights of the parties, the obligations, the contingencies, and things like that. And there's a, a clause inside all merger agreements that's called the material adverse change clause. That says that if something material happens that's bad on the part of either party, then the other party can walk away. And so um, before September 11th, um, there was no mention in there of terrorist acts. After September 11th, you had provisions in the contracts that said that uh, this contract is still enforceable even in the event of, of a terrorist act. It shall not be considered a material adverse change. 
And after that hurricane that I mentioned to you, um, there were clauses inside that that said that um, natural disasters are not considered or, or acts of terrorism are not considered uh, material adverse changes for the purpose of terminating the agreement. So it's an evolving type of, of, of uh, technology and, and strategy that we need to be aware of in terms of the drafting of these agreements. So we've seen it, you know, we've seen a, a whole evolution of them over time. And, and as a matter of fact, right now, there are provisions in merger agreements that say that pandemics are not grounds for termination of the agreement. Hmm. Let's jump into your second idea, and that's going long Aerojet, uh, Rocketdyne Holdings. Uh, they're looking to be acquired by L3 Harris, or I should say L3 Harris is looking to acquire them. Let's just take a step back and look at where this has been trading prior to rumors of a potential transaction. It was trading at about $42.50. There is an offer in for $58 per share. And today it's trading around $56 or a little above $56. So just about $2 difference from what they're offering. Uh, if you don't know the Aerojet company, this is an aerospace and defense company. Just walk us through a little bit about these two companies and what you know about them, why you think it makes sense. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Well, this is an interesting one because Aerojet Rocketdyne had been previously in a merger agreement to be acquired by Lockheed. And they made their filings and uh, due to antitrust concerns, the transaction was terminated. It wasn't apparent at the time that the Department of Defense supported the transaction. They're the most important player here. They're the biggest, excuse me, they're the largest customer. And, you know, unless they kind of give the thumbs up on a, on a deal, um, it's not going to, in a defense deal, it's not going to be approved by the Federal Trade Commission. So that deal was terminated. Shortly thereafter, a smaller competitor, uh, L3 Harris, um, announced that they were buying Aerojet Rocketdyne. Uh, the, reason, the reason why deals are often terminated or blocked by regulatory authorities is because either they're going to dominate a particular product line. In this particular case, it was rocket engines or they may foreclose competition in other areas, i.e. products that use the, the rocket engines. In this particular case, L3 is a better buyer, of, in our view, because they don't compete with Aerojet Rocketdyne in any areas. There's no overlap in rocket engines. And, um, and we've, we haven't heard any objection from, from either competitors, customers, or the Department of Defense yet. In fact, the, the, the uh, investor relations contact over at L3 Harris right now uh, has stated to analysts that he believes that the Department of Defense does not object to the transaction. So that's very important. I mean, as, as you can tell from our conversation, one of the main um, considerations and analysis that we do is with regard to regulatory approvals, because that's what's going to hold up a deal, that's going to control the timing, and that, that can block a deal. Uh, there are other things that can block a deal, such as a shareholder vote, which we're gonna we have here. This is a great premium. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna vote it down. Uh, the failure of financing. Financing is in place here. So if you look at all kind of all the you know all the targets that need to be knocked down for for a deal to be successful, these guys have them lined up pretty well. Um, most importantly, again, I would stress is that they don't compete with each other, um, and the Defense Department has not objected to the transaction as of yet. So we think it's going to close probably early September or so. Um, it's trading at about a three and a half percent gross spread, 
And if you annualize that, again, which is how you look at it, because we want to compare apples to apples, you know, we're, we're always comparing deals that have a month to go with a deal that's got six months to go, the deal that has, has a year to go. And we have to decide which ones are more attractive than each other, because that's what we're going to decide to invest in. In this particular case, we think that we can earn a safe nine and a half percent annualized rate of return by investing in Aerojet. Again, this is an all cash deal. We don't have to short the shares of, of L3 Harris. And, um, and we think it's a high likelihood, it's very highly likely to be successfully completed. And, and the market is, is underpricing it in our view. And you think it's even more likely than the previous idea that we were talking about to go through when we were discussing going long horizon therapeutics? Oh, now you put me on the spot. I think, uh, I think that they're equally likely. I would say they're both in, in the night, over 90% likely to be successfully completed. You know, the, the only, we haven't heard yet from, from the FTC in the case of Horizon, and we, had, we haven't fully heard from the Department of Defense, but all, all things, all indications are that, uh, I, I, actually, I'd give this one the edge. I'd give the Aerojet the edge. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, you can tell the market thinks so also because the annualized rate of return is a little bit lower in this, implying that there's less, less risk. You know, the old expression, high risk, high return, people need to be compensated for risk that they take. And getting in, I, we talked earlier about how that the time frame is so important, you know. Yeah. And getting in, is it too late then for somebody to get in on a on an idea like this? It's not, as long as you keep in mind that it's sort of an, a portfolio of one investment. You can make that investment, and the rate of return is great. You just have to realize that you're accepting the risk that it will trade back down to where it was before or wherever the fundamental value is. I mean, there are times when a company you know, is still likely to be, be uh, acquired because they're part of a merger agreement and the merger agreement requires the buyer to buy them, but then they may order a bit, uh, they may uh, report a bad quarter, in which case the downside may be lower than it was before. So, you know, you're taking, you're taking that risk, but at the end of the day, we think it's a good risk to take. And it, it, again, it's part of our portfolio as disclosed. And what do you think is the most likely scenario for this deal to go south? The most likely scenario would be that you know, the, the Department of Defense says to the, the FTC, you know, on the, you know, now that we think about it, that, uh, we don't really want uh, L3 to dominate the solid rocker, rocket booster and missile propulsion technology um, market because we think that Aerojet is better off as an independent company because then they can sell to a bunch of other companies. Uh, we, we don't think that's going to happen, but that would be sort of the, the worst case scenario. In which case, it would trade back down to what do we have for downside here? Low 40s. Um, so that's a, that's a big downside. But you know, again, from a risk reward perspective, it, we think the probabilities favor it being successfully completed. And how would you play it if that down if that uh, if that scenario came through? So what we usually do is when we make an investment in a deal, we hedge away any type of exposure that we can find that's directional in nature whether it's, it's exposure to the acquiring company stock, in which case we short shares of the acquirer. Um, if it's subject to financing, we may, we may put on some kind of a financing hedge. We invest all across the world. So if, there's, if, they, if we're getting paid in a foreign currency, we would hedge out the exposure to the foreign currency. In this particular case, all you can do um, is buy the share of the target company. There's nothing, nothing really to hedge out because you're going to get paid in cash. What we do also is to kind of hedge out the risk that we calculated the downside wrong or that the downside gets worse. We sometimes put on a sector hedge. We may have a defense department, I mean, a defense industry hedge of an index, and we'll make, we may sell a small amount of that short 
So if we think it's you know like 80% likely to be completed, we may put on a, a, a hedge for 20% of the value of that position on the industry, sort of just to kind of eliminate the, the risk that the, the stock would trade down just because of the risk that the fair value trades down. But other than that, I mean, if, if, if somebody was gonna go and buy this, I would suggest they just buy the stock, sit there, let the deal close, and then take their cash. And if anybody has any questions for Roy about any of these ideas, if you're watching this live, feel free to drop them in the chat box right next to us and Roy will ask the, uh, answer them. Uh, with that, I wanna jump into your third idea and that's going long, VMware. Uh, they're looking to be acquired by Broadcom. Uh, VMware, in case you're not familiar with it, cloud computing that a lot of app developers make. Uh, this one's interesting because it's not just a cash offer. You also have to look at the shares of Broadcom to understand it. But we'll start by looking at the stock uh, for VMware. It's trading around $122.66 uh, at the time of us filming this. But if you look at VMware closely, um, you'll see that the shares... Um, are currently, I'm just looking through my notes here, uh, There's there could be a 30 37% premium on these shares, but I don't want to focus too much on that because you'd also get shares of Broadcom. So walk us through here. We'll have to keep both companies in mind when we do it, but you also see that as, right. as being key here, but we might be able to put up some of uh, VMware's, um, their, their ticker as, as we walk through this. So th this is an interesting one. And um, for those of you who don't remember, VMware um, is controlled by Michael Dell. It was, it was spun out and he owns, I think he still owns like 40% of the company. It was, it was spun off from, from Dell Computers. Um, and it's also interesting because the spread is so much wider than the, the two, I kind of threw you a couple of alley-oops for the first two. This one, this one is a little bit more difficult um, because there are a number of areas of complicated um, electronic technology that that could cause issues for regulators. The reason why it's on our recommended list here is because we think number one, it's mispriced in the market. Um, you know, it's pricing in as, as if there's like a 50% likelihood of it happening. And we are probably think it's an 80% likelihood of it happening. Keep in mind that you're gonna get about 71 and a quarter in cash, and you're gonna get about an eighth of a share of, of Broadcom. It's a little bit more complicated because you have the option to, so, to try to elect cash or stock. But at the end of the day, they're, giving, they're paying 50% cash, 50% stock, and everybody's going to get, most, almost everybody's going to get cut back to half and half. You, you don't think that that'll happen. And, and just to clarify those numbers I was referring to earlier, trading around $122 today. And if it were just to be the cash offer, it'd be $142 in, in stock um, per share. Um, so, sorry, $142 per share rather, but you don't think that that's what's going to happen. You think that it will trigger, a deal will be voted on where people would get both cash and stock, and that's where you see the upside in this deal. Yes, that's part of it, because at the end of the day, investors are going to elect for the most valuable consideration, and the most valuable consideration is going to be oversubscribed. So people are going to get cut back to 50% cash, 50% stock, or roughly whatever that percentage is. It's right now, the, the stock is worth more than the cash. So the combined value is worth about $150.51 or so. That, you know, if you add, if you assume you're going to get 71 and a quarter of cash plus 0.126 of stock, which is pretty much what everybody's going to get, that's worth over $150. So it's a, it's a huge spread. It's, it's, like, it's like 
almost 23% growth. So you can make 23% if it closes. Again, this is going to take a little bit longer. I think we're using, um, what are we using? End of October. And um, the annualized, that's 45%. So as you can see, you know, in the, in the horizon deal, because it has such a, such a close timeframe, such a short timeframe, um, you know, when you annualize the rate of return, that, that 5% turns into 30% or whatever. In this particular case, the 23% turns into 45% because it's longer dated. It's not going to close until October. But the point being is that you shouldn't really look at it as, as of right now that you're only going to get the cash because the, the, the Broadcom stock is worth more than the cash. And any rational investor will elect when you have, when you have to fill out the forms of what you get, you're going to elect stock. You'll, get, you'll take as much stock as you can get because it's worth more. And then, and, and then you'll get cut back and you only get half. So that, that's the point of it. But the reason why this is trading so wide is because there are some, some potential concerns uh, on the part of the regulators. The, um, the CMA, uh, which again, as you know, the, the UK gumming things up again, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, sorry, from this side of the pond. Is that where you're looking, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they, they have some concerns in, in very, it's very arcane areas of technology, uh, network interface cards and fiber channel, which is the technology that, that uh, cloud companies and cloud computers use to transmit data from, from storage down to the computers that, that are not storing it themselves. And so they're worried about, they're worried that if Broadcom buys VMware, they're going to make it more difficult for others to, to use the VMware product and therefore force them to use Broadcom products instead. That's called foreclosure. Um, and so that's being, that's being scrutinized very carefully. The CMA has said that they're concerned with that. They haven't said they're blocking it. We still think it's more likely than not that they will get the approval. They're still waiting for uh, Chinese approval. They're waiting for U.S. approval. They're waiting for U.K. They're waiting for, for CMA. So there's, there's a, a road ahead uh, where they need to knock out the approvals one by one. And typically what happens is as these approvals are, are received one by one, this deal spread will start to compress over time because there'll be less uncertainty, less approvals that are outstanding, less time for things to get, to get messed up. And so, you know, you'll see that and that in general, you know, for merger arbitrage deals, that spreads that start out wide as they become more likely to be completed as time goes on, the spread will tighten up. And in the last week or so, it'll be, you know, pennies or whatever. But in this particular case, it's super wide. We think it's mispriced. It's not a layup though. I would tell you there is some risk that it might not happen, but it's a very good opportunity from a risk reward perspective. And, and just so I'm clear, is it the, the CMA, again, the regulator here in the UK that you think is the most likely scenario for this to go south? Yeah, I, I think that's the CMA would be the weakest link in the approval. Oh, that, that thorn in your side again. And just again, do you think it's too, I, I think I know the answer that you don't think it's too late for people to get in given how underpriced you keep on saying that you believe this is. I, I don't think it's too late, but you have to be aware that you're accepting the risk that the deal might not be successfully completed. You know, they, they do need those regulatory approvals. It's trading at, you know, as we mentioned, it's a 23% gross discount. Um, and, and when it was originally announced, it was it was 37% below where it is right now. So you do have some downside, but the upside downside is a little bit more closer to one up, one down than the prior deals that we were talking about, which are one up, five down. And that's, again, to compensate you for the risk that the transaction might not be successfully completed. I want to jump into some of the questions that we're getting. Ralph Humphrey just put in, how does Roy think about managing the cost of his hedges 
with the benefits, so specifically those hedges? So it, it, it kind of comes with the territory. You, you, when we calculate a rate of return, we calculate a, a rate of return to the spread collapsing to zero. So in other words, when we, let's say, take the example of a currency hedge. When we buy a, a stock that's being acquired for, let's say, uh, 10 euros, we don't want to take the risk that the euro is going to trade up or down. We want to make sure that, that right now we know that a euro is, and I don't know what the FX is right now, but we want to make sure that the dollar value is what we get for what we pay right now. So we, we don't want to take the risk that at, at closing time, the euro will be worth more or less, so we'll hedge it out. So we, we could be passing up an opportunity to make money if, if we're long the euro or lose money if we're short the euro. But nonetheless, that's what we do. And the same thing applies to a stock for stock deal. When we hedge out a stock for stock deal, we, we sell right now the shares of company that we expect to receive when the transaction is completed. So right now we would be selling, if we were setting up the VMware deal, we'd be sell, selling 0.126 shares of Broadcom because we know for certain what we're going to get right now because we sold them right now. And then when the deal closes, somebody's going to hand me 1.126 shares of, of Broadcom that I'm going, to, I'm going to, to use to cover my short of Broadcom. And then I'm going to get cash for the rest of it. In a, in a purely uh, cash deal, we don't need to put on a hedge because we're going to get, you know, in the case of the, what was it, the, um, the Horizon deal, we're going to get $116.50 no matter what happens to the stock market, no matter what happens to Amgen, as long as the deal is successfully completed. So the hedges are a very important part just to make sure that we don't have directional exposure. I mean, if you look at it, we manage a mutual fund called the Merger Fund, and its beta is, is below 0.1. And that's because the fact that the risk that we're taking is not the risk that the, the stocks will go up or down or the market's going to go up or down because it's, it's a market neutral strategy relatively, um, but the risk that the deals won't be successfully completed. So that's why we have a low beta. And the reason why the beta is not zero is because sometimes people just take risk off in a market panic. And, you know, we, you, it looks like you're a little bit correlated with the market. People sell everything, you know, um, no matter what. But the point is, is that risks are, uh, hedges are very important to have on. And, but now in particular case, we're only hedging the directional exposure and it's not that expensive. So many of the ideas that we talk about on Three Ideas and, and the experts in their fields with whom we speak know the, the cyclical and secular natures of their fields. And I'm quite interested, and I think other, others are as well, is what is the, the cyclical and secular nature of merger arbitrage. I mean, we know that there have been many fewer mergers. Uh, China's been a, a huge spot for, for mergers, going and acquiring companies around the world, and that's come down through the pandemic. Is it volume that really helps your business succeed, or can you succeed independent of volume just by focusing on whatever uh, mergers are available? Um. There are a number of answers to the, there are a million answers to the, the question that you, then there's a number of subjects within that question. Yeah. So, so deal activity is somewhat cyclical and it's going to depend on a number of things. It's going to depend on economic activity in a booming, uh, a booming economic environment. Companies may need to ramp up their production facilities, their product lines, and they may make acquisitions. Um, they may, their stock may be doing so well that they have very expensive currency that they can use to make stock acquisitions. Um, the interest rate environment might be so attractive because rates were low back, as we know, over the last couple of years, that money was cheap and they would use it to make acquisitions. In a bad economic environment, 
Very often companies need to bolster their top line. They need to grow. They can't grow organically, so they'll make some acquisitions. Other times they may make an acquisition defensively because they need, they're having trouble with a supplier or something like that. Um, so there are a variety of, of different environments that lead to, uh, to, to the cycles of, of M&A activity. One thing I would point out though, and that the, probably the biggest, the, the biggest you know, wave of, of the cause of activity in, the, in the, the past several decades has been the internationalization of the stock markets. Uh, the, the regulatory environments are, have become much more predictable overseas and not just in the US and Canada, so that companies are more willing to take on that regulatory risk and make the filings and, and be able to predict and forecast whether they'll be able to close on a deal. And also, the capital markets have become much more internationalized. So we're seeing so many cross-border deals. Uh, you know, Chinese, Chinese are buying U.S. companies. U.S. companies are buying European companies. There's been a lot of activity in Japan, in Australia. Uh, Canada has always been active. And that's sort of made the pie a lot bigger for people like us to invest in. But there will be, you know, there will be cycles. Um, I would say, you know, since I mentioned earlier that it's very important that a portfolio be diversified, that it's a lot easier to diversify a portfolio when you have 250 deals to choose from than, if, than when you have 50 deals to choose from. We think you can achieve appropriate diversification benefits with probably as little as 30, 35 you know, transactions in, in your portfolio altogether. We typically have anywhere from 65 to about 90. Um, and that's, that's, that's fairly constant over time because there just tends to be a consistent flow of M&A activity, whether it's a bad economic environment or a good economic environment. So just as we close at the show, because you're one of the, the masters in this field, that's what your <laughs> colleagues say about you. I won't flatter you too much, but what's the one piece of advice that you can take away from and, and give to us and the people watching for some of the success that you've had? Maybe it's something personal, how you conduct yourself in the workplace or some type of eth ethics or what you've learned going from being a lawyer to working in, in the finance field. What's your, your big takeaway? Well, I mean, I, I, I to start off, I'd say always be ethical because, you know, you, there's a lot of a lot of ways to make money, uh, honestly. There's a lot of ways to make money dishonestly. So why not why not be honest all the time and be ethical? Uh, always do your homework. You know, there's the the street is littered with bodies of people who didn't do their homework, who just took flyers, who who invested on trends, people who invested on rumors. You know, in our space, the one advice I would say is that you may get lucky investing on rumor one time. You hear a company's being taken over, but but. Um, you know, you're risking a lot because the companies will trade up on rumor and, and they'll trade right back down if not. So and and I see the tie that you're making there between the first piece of advice and the second piece of advice, being honest, being ethical and trading on some of those rumors. And, and an interesting point, I was speaking to our, our booker, our lead booker, Mario Rodriguez, who, who booked, this, um, booked this interview with you. And he said a, an interesting line, which, uh, you know, one expert said, you spend more time choosing a washing machine than a lot of people do stocks. They spend all this time on consumer reports, and then they go in and look at a stock and oftentimes spend a lot less time on that. And I'm sure you've seen, you know, how that can wreak havoc in people's lives in this field. That's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, you work so hard for your money. Why not do the homework and, and you know, and, and, Think about it before you make an investment instead of jumping on, you know, whether it's crypto or stocks or anything like that. And any other pieces of advice you have for us besides on it, honesty, ethics, doing your, your research? What's I mean, been the, the key for you? 
well, the key for me is different than advice. I would, I would to investors, I would give, you know, think about investing in pooled vehicles at, rather than just trading single stocks all the time, because number one, you have an expert managing the portfolio. Number two, it's diversified. And, and you know, individuals may not have enough money to appropriately diversify their portfolio. Um, so that's, you know, just as a general investing particular advice. Um, as, as far as, you know, kind of what, what I've learned is that, you know, you can't, you, you have to move on from your losers. Once, once, if we invest in a deal and the deal is terminated, then all of a sudden it's not within our investable universe anymore. You know, the, the, the Activision deal, if that, once that deal is terminated, then we're not, I'm not betting based upon they're going to, they're going to come up with Call of Duty 5 and it's going to be the most fantastic thing ever and I'm going to make all my money back. That might be true. I mean, it might be undervalued. People think ATVI has, has very little downside. And in fact, they think if the deal is terminated, it may trade up above 75, but that's not the business that we're in. And I think that the, that lesson is sort of applicable to whatever kind of investing people do. You know, there's an old expression that says that uh, plan your trade and trade your plan. If, if you if the reason why you're in an investment is not there anymore, then you should think about whether you want to still stay in it. Yeah, digging your heels in can often be a, a huge folly for traders. We've heard that so many times. I'm uh, I'm guilty of that myself. So I you know, well I'm still learning. Well, Roy Barron, thank you very much not only for your three ideas but for your three pieces uh, of advice for our viewers and thanks to the folks who sent in questions. Roy Barron, co-president and CIO of Westchester Capital Management. We'll put all of the trades in the tracker here so people can look at your ideas, compare them to others, and we'll bring you back on for a victory lap as soon as uh, the victory is ready. Thank you so much for having me. Say hi to Mario. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on the next edition of Three Ideas. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.